This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Uh, For the past three years, I've told you that this show is about ag innovation, standing upon four main pillars, which are ag tech, entrepreneurship, sustainability, and food security. My biggest self-critique of the show, at least content-wise, is that I haven't really kept a very good balance of those four. Uh, More specifically, I would say I do a lot on ag tech and probably not enough on food security. I'm actively trying to find some stories to kind of remedy that a little bit and provide some more balance because I think they're all equally important and and interrelated in a lot of ways. Uh, But first, I think it's important before we do more episodes on food security to take a little bit of a, a pause on that topic and just try to address what is food security? I mean, beyond the obvious, of course, which is, you know, do people have enough to eat? And I know a lot of times people in agriculture are tired of the feed the world rhetoric, and I'm definitely guilty of being a bit snarky when it comes to people talking about, you know, feed the world, especially in times where the farm economy like it is today is struggling. But it's all too easy, especially for those of us in the developed world to lose sight of the fact that hundreds of millions of people still go hungry every single day. I mean, hundreds of millions. Most of you likely know the problem is not that we physically cannot produce enough food. We can. There are several other factors that contribute to food insecurity. Though that doesn't really grant us a license to just throw up our hands and say, hey, it's not agriculture's fault. We grow plenty of food. It's, in my opinion, our moral responsibility to look deeper into the factors that are causing the problems of food insecurity and to see what can be done. The data behind those factors is actually collected and reported by The Economist. You may recognize The Economist from the magazine, The Economist Intelligence Unit, in a report called the Global Food Security Index. The index gives us a country-level food security measurement based on several data points that are organized into four overarching categories, uh, which are food affordability, food availability, food quality and safety, and then the newest one that I think was added uh, just in the last few years, natural resource and resilience. Each category breaks down into various data points that go into the overall score, and then countries are scored and ranked from there, 113 countries to be exact. So where's all this going? Today on the show, we talk about some of the key points of this report, at least the 2019 version that just came out this past fall, with Dana Bolden, who is the chief communications officer at Corteva. Corteva sponsored the study, but it was carried out through The Economist, like I said, their intelligence unit. The conversation is pretty interesting because it starts off about the report, but it leads into maybe some more broad questions about agribusiness's role in global food security and also in sustainability. 
Uh, I put together this episode before COVID-19, which obviously has changed a lot of things. Uh, but the pandemic in this case has really only intensified my interest in global food security. I'd like to know how do we create resilient food systems everywhere that hold up to stresses like the pandemic that are outside of our control, but not just the pandemic, like drought and like flooding and uh, pests and disease and famine, etc. Okay, back to the Global Food Security Index. It's really interesting to dive into these numbers. I really kind of nerded out on it, and I encourage you to do so. I put the report and the data behind it in the show notes. There's two different links, one for the report and one for the data. Before we talk to Dana Bolden at Corteva, I did want to share just a few of the key findings that I personally found particularly interesting. Number one, and, and the one where my mind went first, and maybe yours as well, which is who are the top countries, right? Who, who are the most food secure countries out there? Well, in order, they are Singapore, Ireland, and the U.S. Uh, I will say, though, both, and this is what I found interesting, both Singapore and the U.S. drop when their overall scores are adjusted for this new natural resources and resilience factor. Partially because of this resilience metric, and another thing I found interesting is, for the first time, the report measured global irrigation infrastructure. You've heard on the show, I'm kind of a, a water nerd, right? Obviously, important for a changing climate is to know how crops will get watered if maybe the weather patterns aren't as expected. Well, the data indicates that less than 10% of agricultural land is equipped for irrigation in 79 of the 113 countries surveyed. Water continues to be an ongoing concern for global food security in many, many places. It seems the most effective way for a country to improve on the index, so how do you become more food secure, is to build infrastructure for ports and railroads and crop storage facilities. Qatar and Kuwait showed the most dramatic improvement on the index year over year. For Qatar, the jump was largely due to improved port and rail infrastructure. And for Kuwait, the government invested in new grain and crop storage facilities. I thought that was interesting. So if you don't have a good score in your country, wherever you're listening to this, there are things that can be done. And it seems like the most dramatic impact comes from building that infrastructure. Another big concern that comes from this report and this was mentioned back in episode 187 with Ambassador Kenneth Quinn on the show, is declining public expenditure in agricultural research. This is definitely a problem here in the U.S. The investment in our cooperative extension and agricultural research in general is dropping at an alarming rate. And we are almost sure to see the effects of this on our future food security. All right, the last one we'll get into and then we'll get on with the show. I know I'm going a long time with this intro here, but I find this stuff really interesting. Access to financing for farmers tracks about as closely as anything with the overall performance of that country. Now, I don't want to confuse correlation and causation here, but it's an interesting observation and seems to support the case that it's very unlikely to have food security in a country without adequate farmer financing. Okay, that was my breakdown. Go ahead and read the report. Look at the data yourself. Links are in the show notes. But now we shift our attention to the discussion about this report, Food Security and Sustainability, with Dana Bolden. Dana is the Chief Communications Officer at Corteva who funded this report. I wanted to reach out because I was curious, first and foremost, as to why. Well, what is the interest here? It brings up questions for me like, what's the role these corporate multinational agribusinesses have in major issues like food security and sustainability? 
At the time we recorded this, Dana was serving as Corteva's Senior Vice President of External Affairs and Chief Sustainability Officer on an interim basis. He has since transitioned to those responsibilities and serves as Corteva's Chief Communications Officer. Corteva was launched as a standalone company in 2019 by combining legacy companies you've probably heard of, DuPont Crop Protection, Pioneer Seed, and Dow AgriSciences. Before joining Corteva, Dana was with Coca-Cola, where he held various leadership roles throughout his career. I first asked Dana to give us some background on why this Global Food Security Index is important to Corteva. Sure. So we've been doing the Global Food Security Index since 2012. And the original proposition for the company was to bring forward to a general public, and this was before Corteva was formed. So this this was through our parent companies that we did this, but we really wanted to put into the mainstream discussions about food security. So if you think about, you know, back in this say 2015, there wasn't a real sense that food security was a challenge. You know, you go to the supermarket every day, the milk is going to be there, the bread, the eggs, everything that you're used to is going to be there. Well, that was a largely developed world phenomenon. As you look across the globe, emerging markets, that is not the case. So the intent originally was to bring to light to the general public issues around food security around the world. And it it, it served the company well. This was a partnership with the Economist Intelligence Unit to really start those discussions. Initially, the audiences were food audiences. They were regulators. They were bankers. They were people that really invested in the food on, in, in the food chain. And it didn't really get wide acceptance. In the last two years, we started to see local governments and consumers start to take notice of the results of this, trying to figure out where their country ranked and why and understanding the factors. I, I think Something we didn't anticipate, and this is probably true across a lot of industries, is we did not appreciate the impact of social media on this particular topic. Uh, When we started this in 2012, this was a report that was issued through The Economist. It was a, you know, it was a one-time deal where we had a press conference. We shared the results. People got excited about it for about a period of two weeks, and then it went to bed, and we'd start the process all over again the following year. What's different with the partnership around Global Food Security Index this year is that given that advent of social media, people are really tapping into it, trying to understand the factors about why their country was ranked where it was. They're connecting the dots a lot better between the companies that produce, uh, the companies that support the growers, the farmers, and then ultimately the retailers. And so it, it has now created this bigger 360 degree view of the food chain and now that people have so much access to information, they're asking a lot tougher questions and using that data in ways that we never anticipated they would use back in 2012 when this started. It's interesting, but what are the big factors when you think of food security? The other big important factors as far as trying to create more food secure countries and more food secure communities. You know, well, one of the rising factors, and this was this was borne out in this year's study, is that the climate crisis. So every country this year dropped in food security scores because of the natural resources and and the resilience analysis that was part of it. So we were talking about Singapore, you know, which I mentioned led, but they dropped 11 places because of that whole dependency on food imports and and the water-related risk Mm. associated with getting food to the island. That's one of the big challenges that has come out. But, you know, one of the other findings for us is that 88% 
of the countries in the index have sufficient food supply, but there's still 820 million more people out there that are going hungry. So the, the index for us is a tool to not only measure which countries have to put a greater focus. And, and, and by the way, one of the, the, the audiences that has really come online in the last five years is local governments. Before, we had a very difficult time in 2012, we launched this and even up through 2015, 16, when we launched these results, local governments just kind of went, eh, great, good news. This year, every local government had a position on this. And they took a stance and said, here's what we're going to do to try and increase our rating. And, you know, if we can get governments to force discussions about their food security uh, and, you know, their sourcing and how they're feeding populations, that's a conversation that we want to have. So, so I think we have exceeded our expectations in terms of value. We started with pretty modest expectations. It was really about generating discussions and generating awareness and, and hoping that people would connect with growers around the world, and it's gone beyond that. I mean, it, it's gone way beyond that. And, and like I said, governments are now using this as a benchmark. You know, our customers, our, our, our really growers are looking at this. And one of the things that is a surprise byproduct of this is that as growers make planning decisions, they look at some of these statistics and say, hmm, this could be a good market for us going forward. And that's, that's something we never would have anticipated when we started this in 2012. As you look at the most recent report, the 2019 Global Food Security Index report, does it make you more optimistic or less optimistic? And, and why do you say? If I were to draw a picture for you, Tim, it would be a flat line. It would go down a little bit and then it would start to go up almost like a hockey stick. That's how I would put my optimism. So I think people are going to be in this first phase where they're just digesting the data. I think there'll be an oh no, or uh, I was going to say something a little more offensive, but there'll be an oh my goodness <laughs> moment. And I think people will kind of go into this little bit of paralysis while they try to process the, the facts, especially what it means to my country, and start to do this questioning about what is my leadership doing? What, what are the associations who engage in the food supply are doing? And then I think once those connections are made, we're going to start to see that progress start to truly be made. And it would be on an upswing. So today, I'm probably even. I'm going to be a, a bit less optimistic in about three or four months. And by the end of the year, I'm going to be pretty optimistic going forward about how people are going to use this data, how they're going to interpret it, and what actions come out of that. Yeah. And what, what actions do you hope come out of it? One, I, I think that we get governments talking to governments about free trade. One of the challenges that we have is, you know, the, the, the producers of large quantities of food, like the U.S., are subjected to standards in Europe that don't allow a lot of our growers to export. And, you know, there has been this whole territorial issue in some countries where I only grow food for my customers, for my citizens. I don't care about imports or exports. As the walls between the world start to come down, that is going to be less of an issue. And so what I hope comes out of this is government, it, it fosters conversations in government so they can start planning long-term food security together. Because the fact is, we've got nations like U.S. that have an abundance and, and can sustain supporting other countries for a very, very long time. If we get this whole political mishigas out of the way, where countries don't feel like they can accept exports from other countries for reasons that are not science-based, 
then I, I think this data, this instrument will help foster those conversations. Well, this is a very data-driven audience in general, so I'm sure many are going to want to go to the website. It's uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes so that you can go download the report and read it for yourself. But Dan, I want to ask you about climate change because I know we started this conversation with you saying that Corteva was really willing to step out there on this issue and start the conversation for all of agriculture. What I hear most often is people saying, well, the science says climate change is happening and uh, we need to be you know, ready for it and part of the solution. And then, I, and then I hear a lot from the ag side saying, well, we are the solution. We're going to sequester all this carbon and we're going to reverse you know, the, uh, the concentration. All that's good. And it's, I guess, productive if it happens, but it doesn't really answer the question like, if the climate continues to change, how can we be prepared to be resilient against that? I guess, could you, could you offer some more clarity of the conversation there? Sure. And, and Tim, what it's going to take is non-traditional approaches. And that's easy to say, but I'll, I'll give you a good example of what I'm talking about. So yeah, you touched on all the things. We're going to sequester more carbon. Yeah, that's going to help. But if you think about rice as a for example, I'm sure you've witnessed how rice prices produce. You flood the field, plant the seeds, and it uses a lot of nitrogen. There's a lot of, lot of water runoff. And it's, it is not, while people have been doing it for generations, it is not the most sustainable practice. Well, we're producing drought-tolerant rice seeds, and we're actually using seeded, dry seeded rice now to help farmers produce more with less water. There is a tremendous amount of resistance some by governments, but some by, by industry, to embrace this kind of technology. This is the kind of thing that, you know, not just us, but a lot of the other industry players are, are thinking, these are the kinds of ideas that we've got to start to embrace. Think about some of the big rice-producing countries that are out there in the world. They've been hesitant or slow to adopt this technology. I hate to keep going back to the food security index, but as you look at that, and sustainability is a part of this, climate is a part of this discussion, You've got to say, okay, this is something that we've done for five generations. Maybe it's time to try this differently and think about something like direct seeded rice. Those are the kinds of things that we think, so not a burden to the farmer, same yield, better production, better profitability without all of the use of water. Imagine that. That's the kind of things that we need to get people to embrace. We need to get the industry to embrace. And it's not a very easy thing to do. And we, you know, we've seen the most adoption and the most success by taking people to demo plots and showing, you know, the end product, that it is as tasty, as nutritious as, you know, the traditionally produced rice. But you can't do that on scale. You can't bring 50,000 farmers together to see this and get them to change their ways. And so this is why we do things like the Food Security Index to show governments that the traditional ways do not need to be the ways of the future. There's technology that's out there that can help agriculture become more effective with less impact on the environment. And we need you to embrace it. We need the industry to embrace it. You know, that's why we love having these conversations and engaging people. People start to think about technology as just GMO or what was the phrase that folks used to use before Frankenstein's. It is far more than that. And it's things like dry seeded rice that I don't think people have yet to get their heads around to say technology and agriculture is a wonderful thing. It's not a bad thing. 
Dana, I know you and I talked about it, but uh, maybe for the, the audience's benefit, could you maybe share a little bit more about the details of how Corteva has taken the lead on things like climate change? We did something two years ago where I, I noticed, our CEO noticed, that conversations about climate change in particular were not including farmers. They were not including ranchers. They weren't including growers. And it was this group of people that had this preformed knowledge that agriculture was one of the major contributors to adverse climate effects. And when we introduced what we thought, we, we coined it climate positive. And initially, the idea around climate positive was about making agriculture part of the positive discussions about climate, about part of the positive discussions about the environment, talking about the stewardship angle. And we thought we were in a very safe, protected space. And so at the World Food Prize in 2018, in October, we announced our efforts to create this dialogue around climate positive. And we thumped our chest a little bit. And we were very proud because we didn't see any other big ag company stepping into that space. We were very, very quickly corrected by a lot of grower associations to say, what do you mean climate positive? We've been climate positive since the day we started. We've been responsible stewards of the land. And that we had a very adverse reaction and we were just shocked. And so we had to go back and have a lot of conversations with people about our thinking and the process and how we wanted to go about this. And, and it took us about four or five months to get a lot of the grower groups on board, not because they didn't think that agriculture had a role. They felt like as a big ag company, we should have been more respectful and take time on the front end to outline the role that growers have played in environmental stewardship throughout the years. And in hindsight, I can see how that would have been received. But as a newbie, again, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes coming into this industry, and I think I've recovered from most of them. But that was something I just didn't anticipate. I didn't anticipate the seriousness, the passion that growers have around their responsibility to the land. And we got to a very good space after about six months, after going through a lot of those conversations and really walking through our thinking and hearing what they're doing. But the next thing that became apparent to me at that point was that there wasn't really an industry-wide effort to make ag part of that discussion. I think one of the challenges to having that unified voice is just how how complex you know these issues are. So from your perspective or Corteva's perspective, how do you define sustainability as it relates to agriculture? For, for us, it is about trying to create a profitable business model in a sustainable way. So it's using less inputs, to get more yield and more profitability while continuing to be responsible stewards in the environment. And, you know, one thing that it took us a while to communicate is we are not going into this with a Pollyanna attitude that says, you know, we're going to be the champions in the environment and it doesn't matter if we don't make money and it doesn't matter if you don't make money. That's foolish and that's not sustainable. What we have to show is that using sustainable practices, no-till, carbon management, nitrogen management, all of those things that all of our customers and the majority of farmers out there are doing today, doing them in a way that you can achieve scale and increase profitability is the most important thing or else no one will do it. Mm. You know, that was one of the things that we talked with the grower groups about initially when they had such a negative reaction to our initial climate positive challenge was part of what we're trying to prevent is mandates. 
if we can demonstrate to the regulatory agencies that you know oversee the operations of our customers around the world to say it is in our customers best interest to be responsible stewards of the land manage the manage runoff manage carbon manage greenhouse gas emissions if they can do that and continue to make a profit that will scale like nobody's business mm-hmm. But if you come in and you come with mandates and say you must do, you must reduce, you must do these things, that is not scalable, that's not sustainable, and it won't spread. So, And we're not embarrassed by that. If you think about the things in history or in any industry, those things have called on and become the norm. There are those kinds of activities in which people can engage, do their business, do it in a responsible way, and continue to earn a profit. Those are the things that scale and go on for generations to come. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I, I think a lot of farmers sometimes feel like, uh, and I'm not a farmer, so I, I'm in industry as well. Whenever us in industry talk about sustainability, it, it always gets down to, you know, they have to shoulder the burden. You know, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, well, I'm in the midst of razor thin margin, in some case, negative margins, and I'm supposed to step up my efforts when it comes to sustainability. And that's where it just seems like such a hot button for that reason. You couldn't be more right there. And, and, you know, one of the things we're doing, there are a lot of companies, I mean, one of the great things we've noticed of late, the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance has done a wonderful job of bringing our customers and and their members into this conversation. But we, we have created the Climate Positive Challenge now. So 2018, we announced that we were going to create, convene this dialogue and we're going to use our convening power to bring people into the discussion. We did a decent job of that. 2019 at the World Food Prize, we announced the Climate Positive Challenge. And that's $500,000 and that, that's a relatively small amount in the grand scheme of things. But what we are giving that money to is growers who can come to us, demonstrate that they have practices that they're doing beyond the farm gate, that they can scale in a region or in a state or a county to go beyond their their acres that they manage. And, you know, one of the criteria or two of the criteria that we have as part of that is you've got to have an NGO or an academic institution as a partner, and you've got to be willing to talk about it and promote it. So we think that that's one small effort that we're doing that will achieve scale, that will provide a financial benefit to the growers who are out there who are engaged in some of these practices. And us, and like I said, I mentioned U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, they have a similar program they're doing. And some of our competitors have come out and done the same thing. And so it's good that the industry saw this, is mobilizing, and really now speaking language that our customers are comfortable with. And, and we were all sort of ham-fisted out of the gate and that we, we thought just because the companies thought it was a good idea, that our customers would think it was a good idea. We learned a lesson. <laughs> it was a painful lesson. Unfortunately, we recovered relatively quickly, but that, that's, that's where we are now. And so we're all working to create solutions that we can provide proof of concept. It's at no cost to our customers or to the growers out there. And hopefully as people see these things, the benefit will be that we get scale mm-hmm. and it's not a burden. And you know, there's no, there's no penalty for trying new things. And what about for Corteva specifically? How are you all managing your own sustainability as far as if somebody wanted to ask like, okay, from 2019 to 2020, is Corteva more sustainable? How are you looking at that? I couldn't have written you a check to ask me that question. Um, <laughs> so, so no, we are, we are. You, in you a, still can. <laughs> we're in a pretty good spot, Tim. So remember, we just went public June 3rd. 
Uh, and we are announcing our sustainability uh, baselines, goals, and metrics in about two and a half months. And the reason that we're doing that is in order for us to be credible, reputable, auditable, we have to have a year's worth of data in the books. And so, you know, we all merged. June 3rd was the first day that we became a publicly traded entity. So June 1st of 2020 will be one full year of operation. And so at that point, we're going to share all of our baselines. Uh, in terms of things like water usage, recycled packaging, where we're helping to support smallholder farmer growth. So we're looking at all those sort of metrics that you would expect. And when we hit June of this year, we can start to do our audits, share our baselines, and announce our metrics and our goals that will go through 2030. And so stay tuned. Uh, but we are certainly focused on that. You know, and that's one of the benefits of being a brand new company is we didn't have to go back and retrofit a lot of goals or metrics, we said, hey, we're, we've got a brand new slate, we're a new company. And, and the good news is we came out of two very strong companies that had a strong track record in this area. And, and there are ratings agencies out there right now that are giving us ratings based on our sustainability scores. But truth be told, it's based on our heritage company's ratings. And so our first full independent rating won't happen until later this year. So the reason I say I wish I could have written you a check to ask us that is I want to say stay tuned, come back around June 1st. And we'll have a lot more to share in this space for you. Uh, Dana, I'm not a Corteva shareholder, but if I was, and let's say I was, and I was a significant Corteva shareholder, and I said, you know, all this sustainability stuff sounds good. You know, yeah, it'd be good to get the parts of the world more food secure and all that. But what I really want is returns. And I would think for returns, you got to sell more, sell more seed. So uh, how do you reconcile the sustainability efforts with the fact that obviously Corteva has an obligation to shareholders as well? I like to think of it in sort of three buckets. I label the buckets, the things that we must do, the things that are nice to do, and the things that we need to do. And the difference we must need, I'll explain in just a second. So the things we must do are like the things that I talked about earlier. We've got to reduce our water consumption, our energy consumption. We've got to reduce the amount of non-recyclable packaging that we put out into the marketplace. That's the must do. And folks like BlackRock who are out there who are looking to invest in sustainable enterprises, they see that as a must do. Yeah, just that's the green cheese. That's the cost of doing business. The things that are nice to do are things like building scale with smallholder farmers around the world, teaching smallholder farmers how if they convert to hybrid seeds, they're going to triple, quadruple the yield helping rural women farmers in Latin America, Southeast Asia, helping them gain access to capital, skills building. Those are the things that are, that are nice to do, but ultimately that also creates customers. So there's a bit of revenue that comes from that. And then the things that we need to do are the creation of new products like, you know, Optonite, things that help uh, manage nitrogen. Those are those new products that are gonna replace older chemistries that are currently in our portfolio that we charge a premium for, that farmers use less of, but they get a higher rate of return on their investment. So in that scenario, everybody wins. So on the first one, we keep investments coming in because we're doing the things that the responsible investors expect us to do. On the second, we create a downstream effect because we're putting more farmers into the food supply chain, ultimately creating more customers. And then on the third bucket, we're creating new products, creating new demand at a higher rate of return but also creating that efficiency and that effectiveness for the customers. And again, reminder, this, the, the way this all works is we don't make money unless our customers make money. And so as they purchase those products, they use less of it. They have a higher rate of return. We can ultimately charge them just a little bit more and everybody wins in that value chain. That's the story we like to share with our investors. 
I might be asking you to speculate here a little bit, or you could just take whatever spin on this as you want. But what do you think that when Corteva hired you, they were hoping you'd bring over from Coca-Cola specifically that could really help the ag industry that maybe consumer packaged goods had figured out before us? I think what they were looking for from me was the ability to establish real, genuine consumer connections. And that's something that Coca-Cola is very good at. It's something I think I've been able to enhance since we've been here. Uh, we've got a lot of really smart people within Corteva. You think about the amount of agro- agronomists that we have. You think about the amount of technical experts we have. Folks really know their business. And so what I think the value that I've been able to lend in the team that I lead, we've all been able to lend is we take a lot of that really high-level technical intelligence. And you think about things like the Global Food Security Index. We've been able to start to inject those data points into discussions and create connections for consumers so they understand that ag matters. I think that's what they were hoping for. I'd like to think that we're getting a lot of it. I mean, if I look at, you know, we're, we're a new publicly traded company, and so we do a lot of measurement like any company of our size. And what we're seeing from the field is that our message is resonating, that the tone of the discussions between consumers, consumer to consumer, as it relates to ag has softened. And not in the fact that people aren't talking about ag, but they're more informed conversations about ag. People who go on Twitter, people who go on Instagram, people go on Facebook now, there's less accusatory language. There is more civil discourse about issues as they relate to ag now than there were three or four years ago. And the Global Food Security Index is one of those great tools that has been, that has helped us get there because that is independent data. Yes, we are a sponsor, but the Economist Intelligent Unit is one of the most respected news entities that exists in the world. And they're, you know, they're, they're not Fox, they're not CNN or MSNBC. They really kind of play it straight. And the Intelligence Unit in particular is their research arm. So it's not a news organization. So people tend to look at that data at face value and not try and put a spin on it. And so that's one of the tools that we have in our toolbox that allows us to have those frank, genuine conversations with consumers that ultimately they feel like the fear factor has been taken out of conversations about food. If we can get there where people can have an honest discourse and they can challenge each other about what's in the food supply, we all win. And that's where I think I lend the value, where our team has really excelled and where the company is moving towards. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much to Dana Bolden of Corteva for being on the show and go check out that Global Food Security Index. If you have any stories that you think need to be publicized on this show about what's really happening in food security, I don't want them all to be high level like this. This is just kind of a good place to start to talk about the data behind all this stuff and maybe define what we mean by food security. But something that's a little bit more specific about real innovation when it comes to food security, I'm all ears. Hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or via email Tim at aggrad.com. Wanted to give a special shout out here in the midst of everything that's been going on in the spring of 2020 to Helping Hands. I know a lot of you, like myself, are privileged enough to potentially help others in our community during COVID-19. It can be hard, though, to know where to look for opportunities to help. But chances are someone near you is in need and also doesn't know where to look themselves. 
Uh, Helping Hands takes the guesswork out of the equation. It's a free, localized technology. It's an app built specifically for COVID-19. The platform allows users to support the most vulnerable people in our rural communities. If you're healthy and can help, volunteer to deliver supplies to someone in need. If you know someone who is high risk or needs special assistance in any way, share Helping Hands with them and get them the support they need. Visit helpinghands.community. So instead of .com, it's .community. Visit helpinghands.community for more information. Yeah, as we get through this time, let's make sure we help those who need it most. All right. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I know this episode was a little bit different from my normal, but I would love to hear what you thought about it. Good, bad, or otherwise, please feel free to provide me your feedback. I want to continue to make this show valuable, not just in ag tech and entrepreneurship, but in sustainability and food security, which I think is an important part of the agricultural conversation. Either way, we'll be back next week with another Ag Innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.